Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keen On. Over the last 200 years, nothing has divided us more than our free market economic system. Is it the source of every social injustice, from exploitation to alienation to inequality? Or is it essential to our individual freedom and democracy? This debate is as relevant today in 2020 as it was in 1920 or 1820. So what's up with our contemporary free market economic system? How do we fix capitalism? Albert Vengo, author of World After Capital, and a general partner at Union Square Ventures, uh, New York's leading venture capitalist firm. Albert, a world after capital, what does that mean? It means that capital is no longer the thing that's scarce for humanity. Um, we can bu build buildings, cars, planes as quickly as we want to. It's not the thing that's scarce. What's scarce today is human attention. Capital was the defining scarcity of the industrial age, just like land was the defining scarcity of the agrarian age. We're now in an age where attention is the scarcity for humanity. Tell that, though, to a, a single mother who's struggling to feed her kids and clothe her kids. What does that mean for most ordinary people? Yeah, so we have a huge... Uh, problem with the income and wealth distribution in the world. Um, and um, that requires generally changes in policy to fix. Uh, so I've been a longstanding proponent of uh, universal basic income, giving everybody a certain amount of money every month. Uh, and, and you're one of the, the, the founding supporters of Andy Yang. I am indeed, together with my wife. We're among the first five donors to Andrew's campaign. And um, Andrew came to us before he even declared his candidacy. Uh, so, yes, we have problems with who has access to capital. And one of our core tenets of our investment thesis at Union Square Ventures is that we try to invest in companies and projects that broaden access to capital, knowledge, and well-being because we recognize that the access to capital is quite uh, unequally distributed. Uh, when I say that we live in a world after capital, I don't mean at the individual level. I mean at the aggregate level of humanity. Albert, you're a venture capitalist, not a venture capital. Um, when you talk about a world after capital, is that a world after capitalism? So capitalism has been incredibly powerful and effective at allocating capital. Uh, and, and so, post, and by the way, so, why don't so, you define so, what you mean yeah, by capital? So, so if we think about uh, what happened post-World War II, we ran, as a first approximation, two big experiments in how to allocate financial capital, meaning dollars or Denmark or euro or whatever, which is an intermediate step to building physical capital. We don't drive around in gold bars. We drive around in cars. Uh, you don't eat dollar bills, you eat food. So the two big experiments were we had uh, planned economies and we had market-based economies. And it turns out that capitalism 
when you think of it as market-based economies, is very good at taking financial capital and allocating it to the proper formation of physical capital. That, I think, has been proven beyond much of a doubt. The mistake that we're making now is that we're also trying to use the same model to allocate attention. The model being a market model relying on prices. The reason that's a huge mistake is because the most important things that humans should be paying attention to cannot have prices. Not don't have prices, cannot have prices. What's an example of that? What is the price for Andrew Keane finding his purpose in life or for Albert Wenger finding his purpose in life? It's a market of one. There's no supply demand. There's no price. So if my attention is being allocated based on some kind of price mechanism, I will not pay enough attention to my purpose in life. That's exactly what we're seeing. We're seeing a huge rise in the rate of depression, of suicide, of drug use. Why? Because people's attention has been sucked into price systems. What are price systems? The labor market is a price system. The entire sphere of advertising is a price system. And so when you go online today, nobody directs your attention to find your purpose. Everybody's like directs your attention to go consume this product. And this is why the attempt to allocate attention, human attention through the price mechanism is flawed. I'll, that was an example at the personal level. Let me give you an example at the aggregate level of humanity. We are facing an existential threat for humanity in the climate crisis. The aggregate amount of human attention that is currently focused on solving that problem is tiny compared to the magnitude of the problem. There are more physics PhDs working on Wall Street than there are physics PhDs working on nuclear fusion. That is a massive misallocation of human attention. And so when I write a book called World After Capital, the entire book is about how can we redesign certain fundamental systems, societal systems, so that we can free up human attention towards the things that truly matter, such as your purpose in life, such as solving existential threats, such as seizing extraordinary new opportunities that exist in the world today. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. With BetterHelp, you can connect with professional counselors in a safe and private online environment and get help on your own time and at your own pace. You can even schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. At BetterHelp, their licensed professional counselors specialize in a number of expertises including depression, anger, stress, anxiety, relationships, sleeping, and trauma. And anything you share is confidential. If you are not happy with your counselor for any reason, you can request a new one at any time with no additional cost. BetterHelp has 3,000 US licensed therapists across all 50 states and is available worldwide. Start communicating in under 24 hours via text, chat, on your phone or through video, on your desktop, mobile web, Android and iOS apps. 
BetterHelp is secure, convenient, professional, and affordable. As being a listener of Keen On, you can get 10% off your first month with discount code Keen On. So why not get started today? Go to betterhelp.com slash keen on. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's betterhelp.com slash keen on. Now back to the show. Let's talk then about this guaranteed minimum income. Firstly, you're in some senses an economist. Who's going to pay for this thing? And what are we going to do when we are guaranteed a a minimum income? How are we going to live our lives? So we've been creating, since the financial crisis, a huge amount of money. The central banks, for instance, the Fed alone, has created $4 trillion. We have chosen to make this money enter the economy by giving it to banks, who in turn give it to people who are already wealthy which is why I can get a mortgage for a third house at some ridiculously low rate when other people don't have a place to live. The way that I would propose that we finance universal basic income is through what people sometimes call quantitative easing for the people, meaning the central bank creates new money, but instead of giving it to the banks, it gives it directly to the citizens. This is doable. It's doable today. The numbers, I go through the numbers in my book, the numbers all add up. Now, the question that... You ask second is, what are humans going to do if they have this money? Well, we have some idea of what humans are going to do because there are some humans today who receive a a guaranteed income. They're pensioners. Pensioners who have a good pension receive essentially a UBI. What do we see pensioners do? Well, first of all, they move to places where it's cheaper to live and also often nicer to live. A lot of people are trapped in cities that they hate because they can't get away. They don't, in the US, half the population doesn't have $500 for a medical emergency. They can't move. They can't move to a new place. But there are places in the US that are better to live often than the places they're currently at. So that's one thing. The second thing we see pensioners do is pensioners often learn new things. They go back to school. We've seen from early UBI studies, that's exactly what people who UBI get. They go, oh, I've always wanted to learn this thing. I've always wanted to actually become a nurse. So now I actually can afford the $5,000 that it'll take to become a nurse. What's the third thing that pensioners do? They become engaged in their local communities. And again, not every pensioner does all of these things, but many do. And not everybody receiving UBI will do this, but many will. And that's all it'll take to transform society. Some people would suggest, though, that it's all very well for a 65-year-old to behave in that way. But if you give an 18-year-old $1,000 a month, they're not going to spend it educating themselves or bettering themselves. They're more than likely to spend it on on stuff that um, it, it will make them happy in the short term, but won't really benefit them or society. I think the evidence is sort of to the contrary, right? I mean, in the U.S., students have taken on one and a half trillion dollars of student debt. So clearly people want to educate themselves. Right now they're doing it by going into debt that in all likelihood they will never get out from underneath. So the idea that somehow young people don't know what to do with money, I think flies in the face. If that were true, we wouldn't have a trillion and a half of student debt. Your argument then is is built around technology. You're suggesting that 
we have creating and are continuing to create technology, which you're an expert as a, as a venture capitalist, that we're creating technology that will essentially liberate most of us from work. Is that correct? It could liberate most of us from work if we design a society in which we all benefit from this. Right now, there are lots of people in society who benefit from the fact that there are people who have a trillion and a half of student debt, that there are people who are part of the precariat, who live paycheck to paycheck, who cannot choose to leave a city, who cannot choose but to drive for on-demand services, to deliver grocery at what turns out to be minuscule hourly wages when you do all the math. There are people who benefit from this situation. And the example I always give is toilet cleaning. What is the incentive to create a toilet cleaning robot as long as I can pay somebody seven bucks fifty to clean toilets? It's not there. If you go back in history a little bit and think about what happened in early industrialization, people, I think, misread the role that unions played profoundly. Unions had such a positive effect because they made labor expensive, which required the nations in which unions were active to build up a stock of productive capital. If you look to a place like India, where there were an abundance of people, never very well organized, suffering from colonialism, you could just take an army of people and throw them at the problem. You never had to build up capital. And we are now at a stage where we again, now globally, have this precariat of cheap labor. So yes, we could automate a lot of things, but at present course and speed, we won't, not because of a lack of technological progress, but because of a lack of social organization. Albert, how are we going to learn to trust tech companies in this brave new world? Oh. Given, given how, I think even you would acknowledge that they've let us down over the last 20, 25 years. Well, we shouldn't trust tech companies and we have a tech um, power concentration problem of epic scale. Uh, so, of course, you should not trust a monopolist to do what's in the best interest of the general public. So we do also need better tech regulation. Uh, I think we're mostly getting the wrong tech regulation that uh, has actually been uh, reinforcing the power of the monopolists. Um, things like GDPR, uh, now it's going to be the California um, privacy law, uh, then it's going to be the uh, EU copyright directive. Uh, the large monopolists who have monopoly rents have the excess profits to be able to easily pay for compliance with all of this. Uh, and it cements their power, which is why, not surprisingly, many of them haven't put up a protest against this. The protest has come from the smaller, new players, the competitive players. And the reality is we've seen with GDPR that post-GDPR, Facebook and Google's market share has gone up. Is a, um, Albert, is, is a world after capital or your world after capital, is, that it? is, it, is it realizable or is it really just a utopia? Is, is your book a polemic to wake us up or do you think it's it's really possible to get to this ideal place. It's entirely doable. And in order for it to be doable, though, we have to stop incrementally trying to fix the industrial age. We have to recognize that we need to make a transition that's as profound as the, tradition, as the transition from the agrarian age to the industrial age. And before that, the transition from the forager age to the agrarian age. 
in each of those cases, we changed just about everything about how humanity lives. And ultimately, things got a lot better. I am very happy to be living today and not in the forager age or in the agrarian age. But we need to recognize that incrementalism will not get us there. And in fact, Trump, Brexit, etc., are the result of 20 plus years of failed incrementalism that has left larger and larger portions of the population behind. This incrementalism will not cut it. Give me some bullets here, some 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 to do's, realistic to do's over the next five to ten years that can get us to a world after capital. What's it? What are the five, perhaps most important bullets of your manifesto? I don't need five. I need three. I call them economic freedom, informational freedom, and psychological freedom. Economic freedom, we already talked about a little bit. It's some version of universal basic income. It's doable today. We could pass it. We could work our way into it a little bit. Start with whatever, $500, work your way up to $1,000. Informational freedom, we talked about a little bit as well, which is how can we actually curtail the power of the big technology uh, monopolies? And that is by forcing them to be programmable just like all other aspects of computer systems are programmable, Facebook, Google, Amazon, they ought to be programmable. That would remove much of their power and open them up for what, what being that a mean, platform for innovation. Programmable. Um, well, it means that um, anything that I can do inside of an app, let's say, like a Facebook app, I also ought to be able to do programmatically through the execution of some software that executes on my behalf. In the brief, glorious era of the web browser, the web browser was something that I controlled entirely on my behalf. And we know that the end user had real power in that era because I could install an ad blocker, for example. I could store copies of all my content locally. I could decide that I wanted to add highlighting to certain terms. You know, I could even substitute certain terms. I had real power. In the era of the smartphone, I've lost all that power. So we need to make these systems programmable that will shift the balance of power back from the center, from the monopolist, back out to the participants in the network. Uh, and by the way, if, if that happened, would it destroy businesses like Google and Facebook and Apple and Microsoft and I, Amazon? I don't, I don't think it would destroy them. I think it would force them to offer their services in a slightly different model. For example, it would force them to have maybe a Facebook subscription that's a reasonably priced subscription. You know, Facebook could be a very valuable company if people paid a buck a month to Facebook. And I think most people would be like, yeah, a buck a month for my having full control over my experience, probably worth it. And perhaps the same for Google, paying a buck a month to have access to a, a wonderful search engine. Yes. So I, I just think that, um, and these would still be very large companies. They might be slightly less valuable than they are today, but they wouldn't be like disappear. And your third? The third is psychological freedom. I mean, we just have to recognize that our brain evolved in a world where when you saw a cat, there was a cat. And now I can show you an infinity of cat pictures. And so just like our bodies are bad when there's a lot of sugar, our bodies are bad when there's a lot of like these dopamine hits to your system. And so the first two, economic freedom and informational freedom, are things that require some degree of regulatory or social or governmental change, something that we need to do together as a people. Psychological freedom is something we can each work on individually, which is some form of mindfulness practice. And I know that's a word that's, you know, gotten maybe too much play, but 
we know that if you have something, whether that's yoga, running, breathing, whatever it may be, something so that you can go, okay, I'm getting a little overly excited here. I've spent a little too much time binge watching Netflix. I can actually pull myself away. I can actually pull myself away from a comment on Facebook and not reply in all caps, calling somebody else an idiot. You know, we need to all build that part of our brain. We have it already. We just need to build it up. Um, otherwise, our attention will constantly get hijacked by these systems. Your, your, your solution is very profound and very radical. Do you think things need to get significantly worse to get better? Do we, do we need to experience perhaps uh, some sort of economic or perhaps more realistically environmental apocalypse to have um, to, to get the kind of radical solution that you're talking about? I'm writing the book in the hope that people see that there is an alternative place, that there is a positive thing. What we having happen in the world right now is that the people who are getting into power are people getting into power by having a regressive narrative. They're sort of saying, I've got the answer. The answer is to go back to the past, an imaginary great past. We have never been able to go back to the past. Yesterday's rather than tomorrow's. When we invented agriculture, we are no longer all farmers, right? So we do not want to go back to the past. I believe it is possible, but I also believe that the present path we're on is a path that will lead us to a horrible, destructive event. And it's very clear what that is. It's the climate crisis. The climate crisis has been building and building and building. It is accelerating today. We still have a chance to get in front of it. But I do think at present course and speed, the climate crisis will be what precipitates in a rather brutal way that change. Is that why at Union Square Ventures, you're investing much of your capital, your, your, your real money, dollars in, uh, in uh, green startups of one kind or another? Well, we're investing the majority of our dollars in things that fit with this picture of a world after capital. We've just announced two investments in climate-related businesses, both aimed squarely at fighting the climate crisis. We will do more of that, but we will also do more things like that give better access to knowledge uh, so people can learn. I think it's essential for people all around the world to be able to learn. One of the capabilities of the Internet is to make it possible for anybody anywhere in the world to learn anything. That is a profound change from what was previously possible. So we're going to continue to invest in that as well. Albert, what meaning in your life have you got from writing this book? You're not really a professional writer. You're a you're a venture capitalist and a, a kind of, uh, I guess, amateur intellectual. Um, what has what writing this book meant to you? It's been a really profound experience because um, when I talk about purpose in life, right now I see my purpose in getting this message out. Uh, and writing also is a form of thinking. It's the most powerful form of thinking. It's very easy to talk and make stuff up as you go along, but writing really forces you to think something through. So uh, I see it as a source of purpose and um, joy in my life, and I'm glad to be able to share it with others. How humbling is writing for you? You're a very successful venture capitalist. Uh, you're also a, a distinguished technologist. I'm assuming writing doesn't come quite as easily. No, it's terrifyingly hard. And I admire anybody who's ever finished a book. Is your book finished? It is at a state where anybody can read it for free at worldaftercapital.org. 
Uh, and I think this year I'll get it to a state where I'll also be happy if we kill some trees to put it on paper. Uh, you were one of the early investors in Twitter. You've, you've been very successful in a lot of internet startups. How do you view, um, maybe not a world after capital, but a, a world after books? Oh, books are a wonderful thing. I own many of them. Uh, almost every time I'm in the fortunate position that I can afford to buy both a digital copy and a physical copy of a book. Uh, books are one of the great achievements of humanity, and I hope they never go away. What do you mean one of the best? Aren't they the greatest? What, compete <laughs> Albert, what competes with books? <laughs> Uh, well, I, 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 you won't get disagreement from me if you say they are the greatest achievement. And so, what is what are the um, the goals from your point of view as an author? Are you going to finish quote unquote this book and then put it out as a as as a traditional book and, and go through a traditional publishing? If that's what it takes to get more people to read it, then I will do that. And why not just run for office? Uh, because I, a, I think I'd be a terrible politician, uh, number one. Number two, um, I really believe that with what I do uh, at Union Square Ventures, I can have a very direct impact on shaping the kind of future that I would like to see. And finally, Albert, how do people get their hands or at least their eyes on a world, not a world, but world after capital? Uh, just go on the internet, go to worldaftercapital.org. You can either read it right there or you can download the PDF. Today's episode was brought to you by BetterHelp. You've been listening to Keen On, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening. Keenon isn't just a podcast, it's also a book. Our memorable interviews from last year's show about democracy with best-selling writers like Shoshana Zuboff have been turned into a book. Entitled Tomorrow's Versus Yesterday's, Conversations in Defense of the Future. It's available at all good online and offline bookstores. So if you want to read this podcast, please buy Tomorrow's Versus Yesterday's. It's the essential analog complement to this digital show.